Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. We recently released our first full-length audio commentary, this one for Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and we got some uh, more in the works and upcoming bonus episodes that will include a chat about Class Action Park and some uh, surprises. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to the Next Picture Show, a movie that we podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps here with Scott Tobias, Genevieve Kosky, and Tasha Robinson. With American movie theaters still largely closed, we're continuing to focus on quarantainment, pairing films you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. Or, put another way, ladies and gentlemen, by way of introduction, this week, this is a podcast about trickery, fraud, about lies. To tell it on a pair of earbuds, Bluetooth headphones, or computer speakers, almost any podcast is almost certainly some kind of lie. But not this time. This is a promise for the next... Oh, 40 minutes or so, depending on how smoothly this goes. Everything you hear from us is really true and based on solid fact. Keith, this isn't usually a podcast about lies. Uh, But isn't it, Tasha? Isn't it? Isn't almost every kind of constructed narrative a type of lie? Um... And you, Tasha Robinson, how are our listeners to know if it's really you providing the insights and voice they listen to with each episode? That it's not some kind of elaborate hoax? Yeah, but it's it's not. It's it's really me. Oh, but does it matter, Tasha? In the end, aren't the notions of originality and authority themselves illusions? Would this podcast be any less insightful or entertaining if our listeners were to discover it had been created and performed by others? Look, I'm starting to worry that you're going to confuse our listeners. Will I? Yeah. Okay, Tasha. Can you tell us about the pairing we'll be discussing over the next two episodes? In the early 1970s, French director François Reichenbach approached Orson Welles about editing and narrating his current work in progress, a documentary about the notorious art forger Elmire de Horry, whose life had recently been recounted by biographer Clifford Irving in the 1969 book Fake. Things took a turn when Irving was himself exposed as a fake after attempting to publish an autobiography of the reclusive tycoon Howard Hughes, prompting Wells to reconceive the film as a fast-paced rumination on fakery, authenticity, art, his own career, and storytelling. By placing one foot in the documentary world and one foot in the world of fiction, F for Fake helped claim a space between the forms that others would occupy after him. It's become especially fertile territory in recent years, playing host to films like Kirsten Johnson's new Dick Johnson is Dead, a documentary about her dying father that doubles as a consideration of the power of movie making. So this week we'll look at F for Fake, and in our next episode we'll bring in Dick Johnson is Dead. Or will we? We will, but please join us anyway. Who is Elmir? Among all fakers, Elmir is number two. I never offered a painting or a drawing to a museum who didn't buy it. My personal feelings about Elmir are very mixed. Sounds very Jesuitic. <laughs> Elmir, as the great faker of the 20th century, becomes a modern folk hero for the rest of us. Onisraki, my Ladies and gentlemen, a special news flash from Washington. Any moment now, President Roosevelt will be receiving a delegation from... 
Mars. From Mars, peace talks are expected. Well, Picasso is the biggest phenomenon of our time. Where's the best place to start talking about Orson Welles' F for fake? We can start by discussing the magic trick that opens the film, one in which he performs some sleight of hand and declares that magicians are actors playing the part of magicians. Really, we could probably just unpack that idea for a whole episode. Or we could fast forward to the end, after the one hour mark before which Wells promised to tell no lies, to consider the story of Oya Kodar's affair with Pablo Picasso, and how it brought up Picasso to the bed of her dying grandfather, an art forger who'd won a claim for his forgeries of Picasso's. It's a good story and a fairly convincing lie, one cooked up by Kodar, who was actually mistress not to Picasso, but to Wells. Wells incorporated it and Kodar into his movie. Or we could just talk about Elmer de Horry and Clifford Irving, the two phonies that inspired the film in the first place. Or Chartres Cathedral, the gothic masterpiece that prompts Wells to recite a moody rhapsody to art itself. An odd aside in a movie that occasionally seems to suggest that truth and beauty are just illusions spun by, in Wells' words, hanky-panky men like himself. Or is it an odd aside? As a single representative of humanity's achievement, an example of why we should, quote, go on singing, even with the awful knowledge that time will silence our songs, Wells chooses a collective creation with no credited author, the work of sculptors, glaziers, engineers, and masons working toward a common goal over many years, work interrupted occasionally by fires. Wells knew something of start and stop projects, and, having watched films that had been taken away from him released with his name still attached, he understood artistic frustration. F for Fake was the last film Wells would complete in his lifetime, one made at the end of a filmmaking career that began with Citizen Kane and ended in unrealized projects and wine commercials. Wells' name, once synonymous with wunderkind achievement, had taken on other connotations over the years. But maybe, to quote Wells again, a man's name doesn't matter all that much. So what does? Across 88 whirlwind minutes, Wells presents one form of forgery after another, Dehori faking Matisse, Modigliani, and Picasso, Irving faking Hughes, Wells himself bluffing his way into an acting career in Ireland, then fooling terrified radio listeners with his radio dramatization of War of the Worlds, itself a kind of fake documentary, edited in a fashion that still seems aggressive nearly 50 years after its completion in 1973, and after decades of watching Michael Bay movies, Ephra Fake seems less interested in getting to the bottom of Dehori and Irving's deceptions than peppering viewers with pieces of those deceptions in a fashion as confusing as the swirl of events itself. It's more interested in asking questions than answering them. If an imitation of Picasso matches the original, what makes it lesser? Can a forgery outdo an original? To what degree do we use narrative to make sense of the world? Can a man really eat a steak after consuming a whole lobster? <laughs> Another question, what sort of movie is this? In his Criterion Collection essay about F for Fake, critic Jonathan Rosenbaum recalls lunching with Wells as a young film writer living in Paris, at the very seafood restaurant scene in the film, in fact, and Wells telling him his latest project would be, quote, not a documentary, a new kind of film. The end result plays a bit like a cinematic magic trick, a bit of misdirection that sets viewers up to think about two cases of forgery they'd read about in headlines in the years leading up to the film's release, then lifts the curtain to reveal that those are just two stories within a larger story about why we create art, what the art we create means, and why, even if it's all just an elaborate con game on one level or another, it still matters. Well, now, this like most of the Hughes legends is just something you hear and nothing you can prove. But for what it's worth, 
It seems that hotel bungalow was supposedly the HQ of that rather spooky brigade of midnight minions. We used to call Howard's secret police. Well, that's where that tree comes in. Just precisely there, at 1.30 every morning for who knows how many years, some chosen operative placed at precisely the same angle a small and very carefully wrapped package. Let's talk about this movie. There's a lot to unpack here. What is everyone's history with this film? Uh, Tasha, we'll start with you because I know that you had trouble getting through this the first couple of times. And I love this movie. So let's uh, let's go. How about this time? Did you love it too? Did you come around? No. Nope. Still still nope. really not a fan of this film. Okay. Uh, this is the first time I'd made it all the way through the film. Yeah. Uh, the first time I tried, I fell asleep. The second time I tried, I just I couldn't find solid ground in it, I suppose. The way it's edited, it's so dizzying. It jumps around between so many different topics and so many different ideas. And knowing the history of some of the things that this film is touching on makes it a little frustrating when it the, the whole film just feels like a, a shaken cage of birds that aren't allowed to light <laughs> on anything for, for very long. Uh, Wells like interrupts himself. He interrupts other people. He interrupts shots. He interrupts thoughts. It's such a, a distracted jumble of a film. Now, towards the latter half of the film, the part that I really latched onto, which I didn't make it to through the first two times, is when he just starts monologuing. When he settles down long enough to give that just very poetic monologue about how we need to carry on creating art because we're all going to die. Like, that is mesmerizing. It's like having poetry read to you by somebody with, you know, a John Huston or an Ian McKellen, just somebody with a really sonorous and uh, compelling voice and a lot of gravitas. Or an Orson Welles, if you will. (laughs) Or an Orson Welles, if you happen to have an Orson Welles laying around. I'll lay it out that that that's actually one of my favorite passages in any movie ever. And I think in some degree, uh, it's so powerful that any misgivings I have about the rest of the movie, they can just kind of go by the wayside because that exists, you know. Uh, Carry on, sorry. I, I feel the same way about that last 20 minutes. It's about that, uh, the incredible story about Picasso and the kind of like puckish way in which it's told with the, the oh, you're walking back and forth and the repeated eyes of Picasso <laughs> being shown through the blinds, Venetian yeah. blinds and the yeah. repeated eyes of Picasso in, in various artistic ways being shown through the blinds as, as though he's staring at her. The way that entire sequence is told, I, I find honestly really funny and then it's a great story and then of course the rug pull which i was expecting because i was paying attention and when he says at the beginning the next hour will feature no lies you immediately have to think this is a 90 minute movie Hmm. so i didn't take it as truth for a single second but it's a great story it's really well told and between those two things it really leaves you on a a high note like a strong note about this film there's some great stuff in it there's some really interesting thoughts there are teases for stories that you can go look into and you know unpack the story of the howard hughes hoax for instance perhaps by watching the film the hoax starring richard Gere, uh which unpacks that whole thing in in great detail but as a film, as a an essay, as a documentary, as an argument, uh, to me, it just, <laughs> it's like water. Just like that first hour is just like trying to pick up a handful of water for me. Hmm. Birds, water. There's a lot of this <laughs> Water birds, if you will. It's almost like you just finished watching F for Fake and you just have these metaphors that need to escape. <laughs> it's a very poetic film. I'm creating art in talking about F for Fake <laughs> because I'm going to die someday. <laughs> 
Uh, well, I don't think my explanation of my reaction will be as poetic as Tasha's was, but we we did have pretty similar reactions. I actually had not seen F for Fake before. I certainly knew of its reputation and kind of had a vague idea of what I was in for, and that didn't really make it go down any better. I responded to the same sequences that, that you've already called out, the, the Chartres Cathedral monologue, or I, I like that you called it a rhapsody, uh, <laughs> Keith, that's a very uh, good word uh, to describe it. And the ending bit with the story about Picasso was definitely probably the most compelled I felt by the film, even though like Tasha, I knew what the, the turn was going to be. But just the way not only the sort of the storytelling part of it was shot, but also when it evolves into this kind of back and forth between Wells and Kodar playing roles other than themselves and, and talking back and forth in this sort of like foggy, atmospheric soundstage like environment. That was really compelling. But by that point, the film had already sort of lost me in terms of like any real connection I felt to it. And I probably in hindsight should have watched this before Dick Johnson is dead, not to get uh, ahead of ourselves. But that film has such a strong emotional center. And I do generally respond to films with a very strong emotional or, or character core. And there isn't really one in F for Fake, you know? And so I, I felt that absence really strongly after watching Dick Johnson is Dead. I think if I had watched him in the other order, I don't think I would have necessarily liked F for Fake anymore, but I wouldn't have felt... I felt very frustrated <laughs> with this movie. I, I felt like I was being condescended to because I could definitely recognize it as a filmmaking exercise and respect what it was doing and the editing and sort of this nonstop attempt to keep the audience off balance on, you know, and weaving this spell, this magic spell. But it felt like I was having a trick played on me. And I honestly felt kind of resentful <laughs> uh, about it. And I don't think that would uh, hurt Wells' feelings at all. I think he would enjoy that I had that reaction, but it didn't make for a, a pleasant viewing experience. Scott, Okay, so uh, good movie, right? <laughs> yes. Um, well, so so uh, yeah. So look, the hi history with this film, yeah. So I saw it along with a bunch of other Wells in, in college. I think I felt at the time that it was kind of a doodle, uh, and was of course completely blown away by canonical Wells, by Citizen Kane, by Touch of Evil, Magnificent Ambersons, Lady from Shanghai, and then I kind of like had a l little more trouble at the time getting into you know, later Wells when things were more obviously damaged, compromised and incomplete in certain respects. But uh, watching this today, ah, it kind of blew my mind, I gotta <laughs> say. I really, really had a good time with it. I mean, it's just, you know, I think I would say, you know, agree with Tasha and Genevieve in identifying, I guess, in order what the strongest parts of the film were. I mean, the cathedral sequences you know the obvious standout and incredible though i think the rest of the film contextualizes that uh you know and, and then the last story is so clever and of course cleanly told in a way that the first part isn't but i just think that as a piece of like filmmaking and deconstruction and uh, you know and also just an ex uh, film about personal expression it's kind of miraculous i mean like you know, it's Wells trying to figure out how can he make an essay film, a personal film, uh, through 
scraps through somebody else's art, you know, through his own. Medita- I mean, he's found basically he's found a form that completely fits him. It's like he's tailoring his own cinematic suit with F for fake. In some ways, not to get ahead, but it's almost a better pairing with camera person uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> than, than Dick Johnson is dead. Yeah, that's true. No, but I mean, I think both Dick Johnson is dead and camera person are essayistic and definitely mm-hmm. of a piece with each other. But I think you're probably right in the sense that camera person is made up also entirely of leftovers, yeah. exactly a hundred percent yeah right it's it's all b-roll but yeah so so in the same spirit but i just you know i just you feel like you're just this is just the essence of wells at this point in his career and his life it's such a great kind of final film i mean i guess you could say now the other side of the wind is this final film but this was for quite a while and and um it just feels like a, a nice landing spot for a career that was kind of messy but full of fitfully extraordinarily brilliant and i don't know i had a a good time with it despite its flaws to bring in another part of the film that did work for me more than than other parts is like when wells was engaging with his own work with war of the worlds and uh, into citizen kane and you know musing on how that all fits into this theme of trickery, sleight of hand, what whatever. But there was just there was just all this other stuff, you know, obscuring that. And it's just the I understand the exercise of bouncing around between all these different moving parts, but I just kept feeling left by like, wait, I want more of that. Like, yeah. can, can, we, can we stick with that for a minute? And I felt like that, too, with the whole Clifford Irving thing, because that was not a story I was familiar with before watching this movie. I think it was just maybe a little too early to to be on my radar. And like, I went and looked it up after watching this. I was like, oh, yeah, like, I, I totally understand why this story fits in here. But it's like mashed in with like three other stories and you can't really track it in any satisfying way. So if you don't already know it, which to be fair, probably most of the people watching this movie at the time did have that context. But if you're looking to know more about that, this film is not going to give that to you. Just like it's not going to give you more than three minutes of Wells, you know, talking about War of the Worlds and how it fits into this, you know, idea he has for this film. Yeah, I just find Wells great company. I mean, I just, I just, That's I like true. being, you know, I, I know he's kind of messing around with us the entire time, but, but I, I enjoy, you know, I feel like I'm in the hands of someone who is, uh, kind of a master at what, of doing that and finding a new way to do it. I mean, I, I was going to bring up the, the question that you've already kind of touched on, Scott, which was, how does this look in context of, of Wells' other work? Because it, it almost, I mean, is so Wells through and through. Mm-hmm. Stylistically, it's such an outlier, too. I mean, maybe The Other Side of the Wind kind of makes more sense as, as you know, there's a little bit more of that in this and vice versa than, than we knew, uh, you know, for years when, when Other Side of the Wind wasn't available. But, um, you know, it is sort of a, a late career uh, attempt to just, like, rip it up and start all over again in some ways. This reminded me incredibly of my experience watching The Other Side of the Wind. The editing just kind of feels very of a piece with it. I feel like Wells kind of got credit for reinventing cinema with Citizen Kane and then spent the rest of his career sort of trying to reinvent cinema in ways that didn't work nearly as well as kind of the the juxtapositions and and suggestions and structure uh, and kind of like formalism of Citizen Kane. This feels like an attempt to reinvent cinema uh, as this kind of like janky, hoppy uh, series of suggestions rather than a statement. It's like he 
he's trying to reinvent editing as this again i'm going to come back to like it, it's like it's like a flock of birds flying past your face and you're trying to see them all at once <laughs> and I, I i just don't think the cinematic language here is as compelling as some of his other kind of more what we would now call maybe traditionally edited films although they weren't considered traditionally edited at the time I mean, they more or less are. I mean, I you know, I, some of the, some of those early, you know, Citizen Kane, Magnificent Ambersons, A Touch of Evil. These are all, you know, I, fairly conventionally edited films. I think you just by you know, today's I thought, standards. I, I mean, they're also they're also showy and experimental by for the sure, of the time. but in a different. But I think in a little bit of a different way. But yeah, no, of course he was always pushing the art. I always felt like, though that Citizen Kane was less a kind of reinvention of the form than a summation of where cinema had gotten to at that point. Like he just took everything, all the advancements that had happened in every part of the, the, the art form and just kind of like incorporated into this thing, into this, you know, it was almost like the end of an era and the start of a new era. We should do Citizen Kane sometime. <laughs> I like that movie. Um, I've heard it's I know. I, it's so weird that the two Wells films we've done have been these just extreme outliers. <laughs> yeah, there's they are strange. I mean, and, and you know, I mean, it, but I think it almost is that that you know, so the the knockabout way that things kind of went for him later in his career is very much in the fabric of this movie, and I think that he feels compelled by his own dare to push it like he does i mean he you know he wants to constantly you know play with form play with editing reveal layer after layer after layer show uh, uh, layers of truth layers of artifice I mean, he you know he's constantly moving in this film it's very restless and and i guess we do feel grateful for when he slows down, you know, with the cathedral sequence and with the last, you know, bit involving Picasso. But um, it's just revealing. And, you know, it's, it's just cool that he's kind of found a way to kind of use the tools of the medium and to use other footage to express something personal. I think also, that, you know, getting to make a film was so rare that it's going to be overstuffed with ideas in some ways that like, I, I wanted to try this, this and this. And I'm, this is the one movie I'm getting, I know I get to make. So here they all are. It, it but, was but didn't he like at this point, wasn't he like trying to make a bunch of films? Like I'm not like, like he had like so, so many like sort of unfinished works yeah, at this point. I, right. You know, like, like restless feels like a very good word to describe not just this film, but just maybe where he was as a filmmaker at this point. And I think this movie definitely telegraphs that feeling. Yeah. And after this, he'd soon, he'd return to Hollywood and, and have a lot of false starts and then narrate a lot of terrible documentaries and do <laughs> wine commercials. But Although he, uh, I, I had always heard the F for Fake was his final film, but he finished a documentary called Filming Othello that got an actual right. theatrical release after this. I, I haven't seen it, but apparently that's his actual last completed film yeah yeah i hadn't considered that i've never seen that one i hadn't considered it is there another thing to hear where given the time that this got made given the you know the 70s when which was such a kind of a renaissance for young exciting you know new filmmakers you know pushing the the you know at the edge of what studio film films could be 
was is there an element of this of just like Wells coming in and saying I can do this too? <laughs> you know, it reminds <laughs> me of like what what Preminger was trying to do with like Skidoo or something. Like <laughs> I'm hip, I'm a, I'm a hip guy, you know. I'm like I, I'm still I still got it. It's kind of a good version of that. Look at my but, like, sexy mistress. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. right. There's this kind of like there's sort of the old guy still got it quality, but this also feels removed from that era. I mean, you you never talk about F for fake, you know, in the same breath as you talk about you know whatever Scorsese and Coppola and Altman and those types of people were doing at the time. I mean, it's just he's kind of his own little island with this thing, but it still feels related not only to American films but also to what you know the, what the French were doing as well. So that brings me to something else I want to talk about, which it was not well received at the time, or it was sort of, there's faint praise. I'm, I'm sure it has some champions, but it also some hostility. Uh, Roger Ebert called it minor wells, but it feels like its reputation just keeps going up, up and up over the years. Uh, why do you think that is? I mean, I'm going to be blunt about this. Uh, he died. And <laughs> what what felt like a small film in a what could potentially be still a long filmography because he was working on so many uh, big ambitious projects he was you know forever trying to get back to the level of those big game changing features they never materialized and suddenly this is a completed work with a completed idea and also expressly a film about creating art to live on after your death instead of something that just seems like a byway in a a larger career. I mean, there are ways in which we can only really look at the totality of somebody's career when we know it's the totality of their career. And I think that part of the renovation of this movie's reputation just kind of comes down to taking it in a more sentimental light, like seeing the ways in which it kind of comments on and feels continuous with his life. And just, you know, knowing that he wasn't going to produce like eight more films that were far more towering and tremendous than this. See, I would put a different spin on that. And that I I do think that Orson Welles has had to deliver the career that he's had in order for this film to make any sense, right? It's not, it's not some standalone thing that we can look at and analyze outside of the context of everything that he'd done before. I mean, the film, the film itself really doesn't allow us to do that. But I think also he would, you know, my explanation would be that the film is just ahead of its time. I mean, like, the idea of of kind of mixing fiction and non—I mean, nonfiction itself had not gotten to a point where F for fake is at really, where you could kind of start to reveal some of the devices of the medium, be upfront about the fact that film is full of truth and lies, no matter whether it's their fiction films or nonfiction films. I mean, he's kind of revealing these lines that were understood as more sacrosanct at the time than than they are now. You know, when we have like True False, which is where I saw Dick Johnson is dead. Uh, I mean, this is kind of like the perfect True False film and that it's in that in that zone. But I don't think a lot of movies were in that zone. And so I think we've kind of caught up to it. That would be my more optimistic glass half, half full kind of interpretation. I did actually have the passing thought. If I, I wondered if uh, True False was named like in tribute to this film, considering that you know it's home to many unconventional documentaries. Um, yeah, I, I don't. And, I and fiction films. They, they've yeah, done. They've right. done. They've done some fiction films there that have been like The Rider was there because The Rider is kind of a is sort of a right. hybrid movie. Yeah. 
another possible answer to why its its reputation has has changed over time and i'm i'm stealing this from the uh, criterion essay that that you mentioned in in the keynote keith but uh, Rosenbaum uh, mentions just that this is a very home video friendly movie um, mm. that that it rewards not just rewatching but being able to kind of freeze frame and and study what it is that Wells is doing in in the editing room here, you know. And I can't personally speak to that because I haven't watched it a second time and I haven't watched it in that way. But I can certainly understand, especially if you're looking at this not necessarily as a a movie that you sit down and enjoy, but as a movie that you sit down and like experience and study and it's think of it as like a text, then I I can definitely understand finding it more rewarding being able to sort of study it in that way. And that takes time. Like, you know, that's not the experience that people experiencing it for the first time in cinemas would have. Home video also lets you pop it in and skip to the good bits. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I mean, if you, if you want to talk about studying bits of it, like the ability to just kind of like jump forward and listen to that monologue at will, mm-hmm. uh, it seems valuable to me, honestly. I like, I, I would not want to go back into the theater and sit through that first hour of uh, while jumping around in order to get to the part where uh, Orson Welles reads me the world's grimmest, most cynical, most beautiful lullaby. And now is the point where I break Scott's heart and wonder if that sequence is on YouTube and if you can just watch it there. <laughs> it is actually back in the iPod Touch days. I kept a couple of scenes on my iPod Touch, and that was one of them uh, to have. That's a yeah. that's a very Keith Phipps story. I like that. Yeah. I know. <laughs> can we can we talk a little bit about how smug this movie is? I I, I find it. I, mean, I already called it condescending. Is, is, yeah, so exactly. I'm definitely but, on your team there. <laughs> so here's the thing, though. I, like when we talk about how much it feels like a Wells movie and and how it fits into Wells cinematography, I just everything i know about him everything i've seen of him even his his presence in his own projects has always felt kind of uh, smug and superior to me and maybe it's just a persona maybe it's just the way he holds himself but he gives us that little like wink wink moment where he talks about uh, how some some artists have to deal with being called pretentious uh and you you know that he's referring to himself but i i think he earns that label i just don't find him that pleasant a presence. Like when it comes to showmen lifting the curtain so you can get a little peek beyond it, I don't get the feeling that he's he's kind of pulling up Penn and Teller and, and saying, like, isn't it isn't it interesting to know how it all works? He comes across far more as, you know, come little girl, I will escort you into the the world that you are far too naive to understand and see if you can keep up <laughs> yeah and what genevieve was saying hold, about his uh, ch- check out my beautiful mistress who is uh, beautiful in every way like that that feeling of it it just the whole movie to me just feels like a little smarmy and i i feel like one of the reasons that uh the cathedral monologue lands is because it feels like he puts aside that character and if he's not being sincere there, at least he's acting sincere. He's he's leaning into the emotion of both despair and ambition, of fear of death and defiance of death in a way that's 
like moving and compelling and relatable in a way an awful lot of his check this out you're going to be quite surprised at what we have for you here i say as the <laughs> ultimate showman like that kind of stuff just doesn't land for me nearly in the same way mm-hmm. so you, you got me thinking of orson welles as a precursor to the actually guys on on social media and now i'm trying to <laughs> and now i'm trying to imagine orson welles on social media and i, I don't think that i don't oh, think it would have been a good fit <laughs> orson welles putting out his weekly cinema sins uh video <laughs> I will say, like, I, I 100% agree with what Tasha is saying, but also earlier when, uh, Keith, you, you said something about, like, it kind of being nice to spend time with, with Wells, I, I, I think, or, or something to that effect, I also kind of, uh, you know, muttered agree, agreeing noises. We can't so, both be right, Genevieve. One I know, of us is I know, right, one of us I know. is wrong. So, so, so I'm, I'm going to, like, kind of puzzle out the distinction there, because, like, I think the times in this movie where... I liked Wells the most and when that persona worked for me the best was when we saw him actually in an editing room, you know, and I really like that the film kind of has these moments of him. I don't know if it's an actual editing suite or if it's a stage, you know, but I felt and maybe it's just because editing is such editing is a character in this movie. I, I, <laughs> if I want to be Wellesian and pretentious about it, but that's when it felt like he was holding court, and I actually like kind of wanted to listen to him and see what he had to say in this context of this story like thing that he was trying trying to craft for us. But when he is in the film, especially when he's like you know, at parties, you know, at the restaurant, um, in voiceover talking about Oya, like that's when that smarmy ickiness came out. But when he was like kind of just isolated in this editing booth, that's where the the Wells persona worked for me. I think you could say that there was never a point in Orson Welles' adult life when he wasn't the center of attention, when he wasn't the genius. I mean, he was a genius, legitimate boy genius, you know, at the center of the Mercury Theater, you know, he was just a commanding presence. I mean, and so this is a continuation of that. This is a continuation of Wells sort of holding court in one's tolerance for that, I guess, has to do with one's level of affection for Wells and what he represents. But I do think the cathedral scene again becomes a very important counterpoint to all of it because it is a moment of genuine self-effacement you know of literally a discussion of the fact that the person who made the art ultimately does not matter you know the art is going to last what before what you know long after that person is gone and the name the name of the person who created it isn't isn't going to be important and for somebody like orson wells you know the ultimate auteur to say such a thing is quite striking i think you know you know and it's especially in the context of this movie where again he is the center of attention this is his movie you know through and through he is the one um you know holding court with us uh you know and with other characters on the screen much of the time so i I don't know I, i mean i like that i like the juxtaposition there i guess between you know, the Wells is you, you expect him uh, as the center of attention, perhaps smarmy or, you know, if, you don't, if you're not a fan or perhaps inspiring at certain times, um, but very much himself. Then he kind of gets to that moment where um, he reflects on that a little bit. And I think that's powerful. On some 
level while watching this, I kept expecting him to pull back the curtain further. So much of what he's talking about in terms of uh, trickery and sleight of hand and the way the eye lies is just so fundamental to movie making, you know, where you have uh, two shots side by side and they look like they're one character moving from one room to the other, but they were definitely shot in different days. They were probably shot in different cities and in different locales uh, and it's all seamlessly edited together. Because he goes on so much about uh, like uh, trickery and uh, magic and uh, the imagination and not trusting what you see and how everybody's a fraud in the first act, that little trick with the white screen um, just seems so telling to me. And I keep waiting as I'm watching for him to like point out just the the trickery of it. I, I don't trust anything I'm seeing. I don't trust that all of these party scenes were actually shot at a party. When Wells himself is talking, the voice never quite matches his mouth movements. Mm, I, I assume because too. it was all ADR'd later and maybe not ADR'd particularly well. But because of what it is, I kept thinking that that was maybe part of it, that there was more to it, that there was deliberate fakery going on somewhere in there. And especially in the Picasso through the blinds sequence, I I kept thinking, are these all actual Picasso paintings that I should know? Like, are these, was any of this painted just for this film? I feel like there's a story in that montage. I feel like there's a story in every montage in this film. And I feel like it would be possibly more interesting to me than the film itself would just be like a a literal blow by blow of Wells in the editing room talking about like where this footage actually came from um, and what we're actually seeing here. It, It just, it feels like it was put together out of so many pieces and parts and that the trickery of it is just kind of a fundamental part of the trickery of cinema itself. It seems like yet another really interesting thing that the film just doesn't really delve into enough. You know, I find it interesting that we've been talking about this film for going on 40 minutes now. And we've talked so much about Wells and so little about Dahori and Irving and even Oya Kodar. Like, you know, for as much as is going on in this movie as many different threads as there are it's all about wells you know (laughs) like it of course we don't learn more about this art forgery story because that's really not what this movie is about it's about like a wild hair that wells got up his butt and wanted to like follow his cinematic muse and he successfully did that and he didn't maybe successfully tell us the story of this art forger in a satisfying way but he did you know, make a very interesting portrait of Orson Welles at this point. He also gave us a really interesting portrait of the art world. And the by the end of the film, it sounds like 50% of everything in a museum (laughs) or the hands of a private collector. Right, right. I want to know, but but I don't know if that's (laughs) true. I mean, he tells me that's all true, but like the film doesn't act like it's true. That's within the first hour. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I tried to like look for uh, you know actual instances of Dahori paintings turning up in museums, and I, I mean I could look deeper. I didn't really uh, find mm-hmm. anything. But to close this out, I, I think I think we're all gonna have the same answer to this question, but maybe I'm wrong. Where was the first time you encountered Orson Welles? Like his his films or him just, as just a... him as a presence him personally. I I think there's, no. I think there's just one, there's one answer. I mean, it has to be the Muppet movie, right? We're all we're all kind of. Oh. Um, I mean, you're a little younger, but 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 like you know, uh, Genevieve. But the rest of us are had to be the Muppet movie, right? 
That's a good question. I think it had to have been. I mean, there's there's a very small chance that it was uh, Transformers the movie, where yeah. he he voices the planet. You would have seen eats... the Muppet movie by then, though, I, right? I don't. I don't know which of those came first for me. I'm assuming that the Muppet movie did, and yeah. that uh, I didn't get the joke, as I didn't get so many of the cameo jokes in that movie. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, watching the Muppet movie now with my kids, it's like, look, Charles Durning. <laughs> um, but like, it would have had to been the Muppet movie for me too as well. But I have extremely strong memories of me and my best friend at the time as like, God, I must have been like fifteen or so. Uh, you know, renting Citizen Kane and, uh, and, and because we'd heard it was the greatest film of all time, and and watching it. So I saw Citizen Kane pretty early before I saw anything else. You know, Muppets actually wasn't a part of my childhood very much. It was something I kind of came to to later in life. So Muppet Movie was, I don't think, my first exposure to to Wells. And I I didn't see Citizen Kane until college or or grad school. But my first exposure to him like as a person uh, came through cartoons, where so much came from. Um, Specifically, the many, many parodies of the Frozen Peas uh, commercial (laughs) uh, and Animaniacs had a frozen peas bit uh the critic had a frozen peas bit um i believe well futurama came a little later by that point i was oh i was already more well-versed but or (laughs) wells-versed uh but yeah like you know until i was a you know solidly an adult i think my perception of wells was mostly as this sort of silly joke character which is kind of Hmm. sad you know um and you know we we learn and we grow as people but uh if we're talking about first experiences that that was mine (laughs) the pinky in the brain one really commits to it too like that is an in-joke for not just for it's not just like an in-joke for grown-ups on a kid show it's an in-joke for a certain subclass of of really nerdy grown-ups on a kid show i mean that's that's animaniacs in in, in a nutshell animaniacs for you I have a really strong memory of, of a film that used to show on HBO a lot called The Man Who Saw Tomorrow, which he narrated, which is a, especially if you are um, eight or nine, as I was uh, when I watched it, a terrifying uh, trip through the prophecies of Nostradamus and the coming, the apocalypse sure to hit before the end of the 80s. Uh, so it's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's rough stuff. This was still probably after the Muppet movie, but in fifth grade, we had a social studies teacher, of all things, who did an entire unit on science fiction and played us segments of the the Wells War of the Worlds to kind of explain to us it's a lot like the the classes that kids get today in understanding falsity on the internet it, it was very much like that it, it was fundamentally here's a science fiction story but we're not listening to it because it's a science fiction story we're listening to it because it's a great example of how naive people can be how easily deceived people can be why it's important to fact check why it's important to like check your surroundings and pay attention to clues and consider the source it was it was again kind of an early exercise in cynicism uh, courtesy of wells but they would it had a huge impression on me when i was young just the the idea when you're that young it's certainly possible to have an illusion that adults know everything that they're have an almost magical ability to tell truth from falsehood that they're they're responsible and well adult and then you hear a story like that you realize maybe grown-ups are just making it all up as they go along too maybe they 
don't know anything? Like, how could so many people be fooled in such a, a broad way and to such a huge degree? And that's, in some ways, that's kind of well, one of Bidwell's big legacies here and in his other work is just kind of pointing out how easily people are led and deceived and, and toyed with. Well, that brings us full circle, and it seems like a good place to wind this down for now. We'll be, uh, I'm sure, no doubt, we'll be talking about it uh, more in our second half. That's how this. That's how the podcast is structured, after all. Um, <laughs> I have a feeling. I have we're feeling not going right to just throw that, out. Dude. We're not just going to throw out the structure in, in honor of, of this one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, we'll, we'll be right back after the break. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Uh, we're hoping to get some more feedback on our Charlie Kaufman double feature since there's a lot to unpack with those films. We should deal with one issue, and that's an issue of pronunciation uh, uh, that we you know, we received some feedback uh, of, uh, of a, hey, you're saying that wrong. Uh, Tasha, do you want to address that? <laughs> I, I honestly, as God is my witness, did not know that there was a difference in the pronunciation between Schenectady and Synecdoche. Synecdoche? Synecdoche. One more time here. Synecdoche. <laughs> I don't know if they, I don't know if that's helpful. <laughs> and Synecdoche. I in fact was was deliberately aiming at Schenectady because it helped me remember how to pronounce a word that is not pronounced anything like the way it looks. But uh you know, a number of people wrote in to let me know that I was wrong about that. And uh then I, I actually checked it, and of course I was wrong about that. So uh we'll try to get it right. We, going we love our little pedants don't we <laughs> uh, you yeah. know this one this one is straight up you know it's it's like as if i actually it's pronounced th- pedant <laughs> <laughs> yeah this i mean this is basically me looking at a uh, a perfectly cromulent word and pronouncing it as a city i mean the it's it's not it's not that pedantic uh, to point out that these words are not the same which i did not realize Maybe we should start a, another uh, comments email address that's just pedantry at nextpictureshow.com. We could definitely start one that's just mispronunciations at the Next <laughs> yeah. Picture Show, because that is something that's haunted us. Like, we, yeah. we all occasionally have problems with how particular people's names are pronounced. Uh, and that's just kind of a, an ongoing thing. We also got called out on Torontonians or Torontoans uh, mm. for uh, in response to our uh, Scott Pilgrim uh, commentary oh, track that we did for Patreon. I'm sure that wasn't a joke because the uh, supposedly right word for it seemed to be Toronto to 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 toians. Like it, it just seems to have too many O's in it somehow. <laughs> Torontoians. It's not just Torontoans. Apparently not. <laughs> Dome Pizza Place. I'm oh, sorry. I feel bad for our Canadian listeners. Was, uh, I think the harsh. base problem here is anything involving cities, and we should just pretend <laughs> that nothing actually takes place in a in a real space in a real city. Uh, no, no cities will be harmed in the making of further episodes. <laughs> Well, a real city that we do know exists is London, and we received a letter from London um, about that episode. Genevieve, can you share that one? Sure. Matthew writes, I know that Tasha brought this movie up in the most recent episode, but I had to talk about Synecdoche, New York, and why it's a better pairing than being John Malkovich for I'm Thinking of Ending Things. I was a little puzzled by the choice of Malkovich when I see Ending Things as almost a remake of Synecdoche, or at the very least, an echo. I feel like Charlie Kaufman read the Ian Reid book, thought, hey, this is like that movie I directed, and then thought, maybe I could do it again. Thematically, all three films do explore art in similar ways, but aging and growing old are way more important in ending things in Synecdoche. 
The tone is obviously much closer, largely from them both being directed by Kaufman, but the biggest similarity that made me double-take was the inclusion of the character of an elderly cleaner whose identity becomes blurred with our main character toward the end of the movie, before they are guided toward death. That's the kind of hyper-specificity that warrants a letterbox list. <laughs> and then there's Jesse Plemons. His entire performance, which I love, is very similar to what Philip Seymour Hoffman does in Synecdoche, right down to the mannerisms, not to mention the physical similarities between the two, which is so big that it gets a mention on Jesse Plemons' Wikipedia page, alongside Matt Damon, of course. If Hoffman were still alive today, I can picture Kaufman casting him as the janitor. Actually, one of my biggest disappointments with ending things is the shift in perspective from Jesse Buckley to Jesse Plemons. Jesse Buckley, while still very much playing a sort of Kaufman persona, felt pretty fresh in comparison to the rest of the mopey sad men who serve as the usual Kaufman protagonists. So to see the movie abandon her at the end was kind of disappointing, and why I'm attempting to ignore the most popular theory about what it all means. If the movie was about a woman who realized that she's a fictional creation, I'd be on board. Instead, it becomes about the man who created her, which is far less interesting when he's cut from the same Kaufman cloth. Kaufman cloth. Hmm. <laughs> Kaufman. I, mean, I, I would respond to this in two ways. In terms of parents, I mean, I, I think that the points that are made here are all well taken and correct, and there's certainly plenty of connections, perhaps more, that you could draw between Synecdoche, New York, and I'm thinking of many things, than being John Malkovich, and I'm thinking of many things. But I think our... I, not to speak for everyone, but I, I would say, one, um, this is our shot at Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> so, like, why don't we, we, I think we had an instinct to really kind of go back to where things started with, with him. And I think that being John Malkovich, you know, really starts, you know, defines a sensibility that has been seen through, you know, so many movies since then. So, yeah, and then related to that is that it's Synecdoche, New York is pretty recent for us to to afford it classic status. I mean, we've made some exceptions in the past, but at least uh, being John Malkovich is, is uh, in a different century. So uh, I think those would be two reasons why we'd have chosen that over uh, Synecdoche. What do, what do you think? Am I right on this, gang? I mean, it's also just, it's a beloved film. It's a fun film. It's a film that we thought people might want to revisit, you know, that kind of older listeners, which is to say listeners the age of many of us, have had probably seen it a while back and, and not in a while. Whereas Synecdoche mm -hmm. is more recent and just like more recent in the memory, uh, essentially. I agree with Scott that it just kind of comes down to it's a little early to afford the newer film classic status. But I also think that the fact that those two films feel so similar thematically and in execution maybe makes it less interesting to talk about them, to talk about the Kaufman dynamic and range. What interests me in a way about the connections between the new one and being John Malkovich is they're kind of fundamentally from the same creator in the same mindset, but they showcase like a different array of talents, a different array of mm -hmm. goals and, and foci in a way that Synecdoche, I, I can't say it. I, <laughs> I, I have a brain block. That said, I think this is uh, a really interesting letter in terms of a lot of other things, including, yeah, Jesse Plemons does feel so much like a Philip Seymour Hoffman stand in. I think if 
Hoffman was still alive today, he wouldn't be too old to play the janitor. He would be too old to to play the character that Plemons plays. And, and I can't help but wonder if Kaufman would want to cast him anyway, uh, because it, it's clear that he just had such a connection with him. And it it really seems like that's the Hoffman feeling was just exactly what he was going for with that character. Yeah, I wasn't on that episode, but but having just watched Adaptation and I'm thinking of any things back to back, I think you're absolutely right about the similarities between uh, Synecdoche and and uh, I think of any things. But I think one of the things that's interesting about uh, Kaufman is how the bleakness was always there and the humor was always there, but the balance has shifted mm-hmm. so uh, remarkably over the course of his career. Yeah, it's, it would be a really <laughs> it would be a pretty indigestible double feature, I think. I mean, I, I think it was nice, and I, I think Keith and I talked about this off air recently that um, it was kind of good for Kaufman to have someone like uh, Spike Jones or Michelle Gondry to, to bring some whimsy and lightness and a different feel to his movies than, you know, him directing his own work. Cause he's, he's a pretty, pretty uh, dour dude and his, and his, his films are so dense, you know? So I think it would be, it'd be a real tough sit back to back these two movies much as I love them both. As to the third point uh, in the letter regarding the shift from Jesse Buckley's perspective, I, I couldn't agree more. It's the big frustration of this film for me is that Kaufman just seems so focused and embedded in this particular kind of like lonely, angry, entitled, sad sack kind of character. And it seemed like he was getting away from it for once. It seemed like he was escaping into a completely different kind of character and story. And lo and behold, that character and story isn't real. And we're back to the same old, same old. That, for me, was one of the reasons that movie kind of ended up being a disappointment. Yeah. And I, hey, I've done, I wasn't on that episode. I'll, I'll also say, yeah, that the, her drifting away was was sort of um, – I, I liked the film a lot, but, but it definitely felt like, you know, maybe a shift that wasn't necessarily the best one for the film to make. But – but interesting film anyway. So, well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll talk about a different sort of unusual documentary. Kirsten Johnson's Dick Johnson is Dead. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, take our advice and don't buy any Modigliani's from strangers, no matter how authentic they look. Yeah, the author dedicates it to a sense.